So we are in Genesis chapter 38. And a lot of people, uh, when they get to 38, they're like going, what's going on? Because last week, you said all of the end of Genesis was going to be about a guy by the name of Joseph. And a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 37, we read these words. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him, sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So you think, wow, we're going we're to learn about what Joseph's doing in Egypt. And then we get 38. And some, some people would say that's a parenthetical uh, chapter, but not really. What, it's, what we're going to learn in 38 is God is still working. God is working in an amazing way. And one of the questions I want you to ask, if at the top of your notes it says, God can't use me because, and there's a line there. Well, guess what? That's not for me to fill in. That's for you to fill in. God can't use me because I'm not smart enough. Or I'm not talented enough. Or I'm not good looking enough. Or somebody hurt me. Or I have this terrible past that, Pastor, you know, you don't know about my past. If you knew about my past, you would know that there's no way God could use me. It's all about, you know, people look at themselves and, you know, you can, you can write whatever you want in that blank. God can't use me because whatever it is. And you know what? In your mind, you're probably 100% correct. Because the reality is, it isn't, has, has nothing to do with your past. It has nothing to do with what you have. It has nothing to do with what you've been through. The fact is, only Jesus is enough. So you can't be talented enough, you can't be good enough, you can't be smart enough for God because it's not going to get you to Him. Only Jesus is enough in our life. One of, the, one of the best preachers I've ever heard is a guy by the name of David Ring. David was born with cerebral palsy. His, his mom had a very difficult time in the birthing process and he was starved for oxygen for a number of minutes and he was born with cerebral palsy. And he was told all growing up, oh David, you're never going to amount to anything. And when he was in high school, he said, God has called me to preach. Now David, he, he has a difficulty walking. He has a difficulty talking. And everybody said, David, you can't be a preacher. But David went on to college, went on to Bible college. And all through Bible college, his professor says, David, how do you, how do you think you're going to preach with people? You can hardly get up and stand up on the stage and you, can, and you have a hard time speaking. Nobody's going to listen to you. And yet David graduated college and he started preaching. And, and amazingly enough, people started coming. If you ever you look David Ring up and listen to one of his messages and you will, be, you will be moved. Because David was used by God despite his cerebral palsy. And everybody told David, David, you'll never get married. Nobody would want to marry you. 
He has a beautiful wife and I, I believe three beautiful little children that God gave him. Because you see, it wasn't about who David was or that he had cerebral palsy or what he had been through. But God wanted to use David and he did. You see, Jesus working through him was enough. And we're going to come to chapter 38 and we're going to find that God uses people that everybody else would say is unusable. Everybody else would look at them and say they're too bad. God cannot use this in, in his world. But God is going to use Judah. Now I want you to remember who Judah was. In chapter 37, what did we see? where did we see Judah? Judah was the one when they took Joseph and they wanted to kill him. And they threw him down in a pit. They were going to let him starve to death in the pit. And Judah was the one that said, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we make some money off of this kid? I mean, he's, he's a pain in our backside anyway. We should, we should make some money. And so they sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Midianite traders. That was Judah's idea. How would you like to have a sibling like that? Yeah. We're, we're, I'm going to make money off of you. I'm not going to just kill you. I'm going to make money. You're going to disappear. And it was Judah's idea to take the coat of many colors. My sisters are laughing here, right? They never conned me out of my, out of my lunch money, right? No, not my, anyway. I love family. They're the ones that held up the coat of many colors with the blood on it to their dad and said, is this Joseph's coat? That was Judah. That's who he was. And yet we come to, to chapter 28 or 38, and I want you to turn there now. Chapter 38, and let's take a look at this guy by the name of Judah and how God is going to use him despite who he was. And it came about at that same time. Okay, that kind of sets the stage for us. This isn't some time later. They go back and they tell dad, hey, here's, here's Joseph's coat. Joseph's dad is in mourning because he, he thinks his, Joseph is dead. And uh, Judah has a bunch of jingle in his pocket from having sold his brother off. And that sets the stage. And it came about that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. And so she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And he bore still another son and named him Selah. And it was at Chizba that he bore him, that she bore him. And we're going to stop there. Do you get a picture of who this guy is? Do you get understanding? I mean, he, his, his, he's just sold his brother off to the Midianites. His dad is in deep mourning and his money is burning a hole in his pocket. You ever met anybody like that? Their money's just, they, 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 they got it, they got to spend it. We used to get it, when we were little, we would get a, an allowance once a week. And, and it would, like if we got a dollar, a dime had to go in for the offering on Sunday. And so we had 90, 90 cents to spend. 
And in Waterloo, there's the little store. Anybody been to the little store in Waterloo? Yeah, many, many times. And so you go down to the, to the Waterloo store, and Grandpa or Grandma Scott would be behind the counter, and behind the counter was the penny candy. Do you know how much penny candy you can buy with 90 cents? Yeah, let's do the math, right? You can buy a lot of penny candy. Man, we would just make a beeline, and if you were smart, you saved a nickel for a nickel Coke. So, so you know, burning a hole in your pocket, and that's the way Judah was. The money was burning a hole in his pocket, and so he went to visit his friend, and isn't it interesting that this friend is named? That's how good of a friend he was. He was a Canaanite from the city of Adullam, and that was a place that he frequented. Judah frequented it often enough that they named the person that he went to see. And he sees a woman, and he goes, you've seen that on, on the cartoons, right? Woo! Love is more than good looks. I mean, this, this gal must have been something to look at because, because he goes immediately and he takes her. doesn't say he marries her, but, but he starts, he, he has sex with her and they have a baby. And matter of fact, they're going to have several babies. But it's all about what she looks like. And folks, I'm going to tell you right now, if that's what you're grading, who you're going to marry on, you're in sad shape. If you really want, if you want to, to, to have a gauge for who you want to marry, look at Proverbs 31. Look at Proverbs 31. Guys, go and read that. That should be what you're looking at. Ladies, that should be the formula you want to use. If you want to attract a young man that is, that is a godly young man, that's the way it should be. I had a friend in high school that believed in evangelistic dating. He, he didn't care whether they went to church, whether they were a godly woman or, or a godly girl. Right? If they were good looking, he was going to date them because, you know, I may have the chance to share, to share God with that person and they might. And, and I'm like, going, are you kidding me? Really? And I, he, he thought that that was his calling. Of course, he thought a lot of things. But, but God says in, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16, he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what is, has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of a living God. See, God says, find the godly women. That's the reason that Abraham sent Isaac off. That's the reason that Isaac sent Jacob off. He didn't want them to marry somebody from, from the Canaanite land. But here's Judah running right to the Canaanites and he takes an unbeliever. In Ephesians 5, 6 to 8 it says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly from the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says, you're different. You've changed. Don't go back. 
I mean, every time we see Judah in, in this next chapter, where he's going to be running back to Adullam. He's going to be running back to his Canaanite friend Hira. And every time he ends up there, he ends up in, trapped in the same sin that he was before. God says, don't do it. Run away. Escape. Don't turn back to that. Well, in Genesis 6 to, uh, 38, 6 to 11, let's follow what happens with him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his, uh, excuse me, yeah, Judah. So there's, first of all, there's got to be a time lapse, right? Because in chapter 5, we had the third son born. He has three sons that are born. And then in, or in verse 5, in verse 6, we see him finding a wife for his oldest son. So some time has passed, and the Bible does that to us. You know, it's kind of like, okay, verse 5's done. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, 10, 12, 14 years later, whatever it is, a number of years later, Judah's going to take a, a, a husband or a wife for, for his firstborn son, Ur. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. And then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so when he went to his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he took his life also. And then Judah, being said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain as a widow in your father's house until my son Selah grows up. For, for he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. What an amazing story we see here. We see Judah taking a daughter of Canaan, Gives her, you know, her name's Tamar for, her, for his son. And his son is so evil that God kills him. You ever met somebody that was so evil that you're like going, wow, that's, it, you know, it's scary. Yesterday I was over, we, uh, there's a bunch of retirees from the police department that get together once a year for a little bit of a, a, a camping trip. And everybody was over at... Uh, South Beach, and so I rode my motorcycle over, and we're sitting around talking, a bunch of us cops, uh, about the old days, right? And now, as we've gotten older, uh, anybody ever, you know, you're telling a story and you forget a name, and you're like, <laughs> and you're like going, uh, and, and pretty soon somebody goes, oh, it's so and so, and we were talking about about one of the one of the guys that we had arrested many many times, and. Uh, and everybody's like going, yeah, he was one of the few people that I would say was really evil. You would walk into a room with him and, and literally the hair would stand up on the back of your neck. And, and he mysteriously died. Mysteriously died. 
I, I believe he was one of those people that were so evil that God said, enough, I'm done. And that was Ur. Ur was so evil that God took him. And then we come to Onan. And, and this is going to, there's a law that is written in by Moses in Deuteronomy 25. We'll look at it in just a second. But God was speaking to the people through their culture and they already had this idea of carrying on the, the, the birthright, carrying on somebody's name through having the next brother down marry the wife if somebody died. Now that would make you very much invested in who your siblings marry, right? You know, if you knew that you were going to have to marry your, your, your sister-in-law, you would want to make sure your brother married well. Well, Onan gets this all wrong, and in, in, uh, well, in Proverbs 10, 27, it says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be what? Shortened. Don't, don't think that God is not above taking people out of the world because of their, their evilness. But in Deuteronomy 25, this is the law that was passed down, and it was obviously in the culture of Judah before it was ever written by Moses. This is not going to be written for a long, long time, 400 plus years before this will be written. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her for himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. He, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, and so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. It was going to become a law. It was obviously ingrained in their culture, and Onan couldn't stand the thought that he would give his brother a child to, have, to carry on his name. I mean... I don't know whether Onan thought his brother was that evil or whether he just didn't like him, but he said, I'm not going to do it. But he did it deceitfully. And God said, guess what? I'm done with you too. And then, of course, it says in the story that Selah's not old enough to marry yet. And so, so Judah says, go live with your father. Go back to your Canaanite family and live as a widow. And when Selah gets old enough, he can marry. But I want you to look at verse 11. In verse 11 he says at the end, For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived with their father's house. He thought she was the problem. Be careful who you blame. He blamed Tamar for her two husbands dying. Whose fault was it? It was theirs. Matter of fact, I would say it was Judas. Was Judas, Judas should have been the one who taught his sons how to live righteously. Judas should have been the one that set the example. But look at the example that Judas set. Hey, if you don't like your brother, kill him. If you don't... if you. It, well, wait a second, let's make some money off of this deal. He was the example for his children exactly the way they turned out. He was the example of evil. He was to blame.
But, but as often happens, what happens when we're the problem? We want to shift the blame. He said, oh, I don't want, I don't want Selah to marry. He's my last son. I don't want him to marry tomorrow because he, he might die too. Well, we get to Genesis 12, uh, 12 to 23, and I wanted, I'm just going to paraphrase this because the story gets a little, little sordid. It says in, in verse 11, or verse uh, 14, it says, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> it says in verse 12, now after a considerable time, after a considerable time, so, so quite a bit of time has passed, enough that, that uh, Selah would have been grown, would have been available as a husband for Tamar. And Tamar, in verse, uh, verse 14, what does it say about her? In verse 14 it says, So she removed her widow's garments. She had stayed a widow all of that time. She had wore a widow's garment, so everybody knew that she was in mourning for her husband. She was not available for marriage. I'm sure Judah thought, you know, I'm going to send her back to her father's house. Some rich Canaanite guy is going to come along and sweep her off her feet, and she'll be out of my hair. I won't have to worry about her. But that didn't happen. You see, Tamar, for whatever reason, was influenced by the family that she was around when she was with Judah to the point that she kept her end of the bargain. She was wearing the widow's clothes. She was not going to remarry. She was waiting for, for Selah to be available, as she should have. And Judah didn't follow his end of the bargain. His wife dies. Judah's wife dies. And where does he go? He goes right back to the place where he goes every time when sin comes to him. He goes back to Adullam. He goes back to his friend Hira. He goes back and while he's there, he's going into the, into the gates and his, his lust, because his wife has died, his lust is so much he sees a prostitute. Now who is this prostitute? Oh, it's Tamar. Tamar had heard that Selah was available. Tamar had heard that Judah was coming. She knew what it, what it was in his heart, how, how his heart was. So she dressed up like a, like a, a prostitute. And it said and she covered her face. That's what a temple prostitute would do. She would wear a veil all the way across her face. So all you would see was her eyes. There was no way for Judah to know who this was. And he gets there and he makes the deal. He says, hey, I'll give you a goat if you'll have sex with me. So he doesn't have the goat with him. So he says, what can I leave? And he leaves a ring and he leave, reads, leaves his family, what it says his cords. So it would have been a cord that he wore around his neck that would be weaved into it the family symbol and he left his staff. Easily identified, it would have been carved with things in it that would indicate who the owner was. 
staff was a powerful thing. Signet ring was, was, a, was what you would seal documents with. He left those three with her, and he goes away, and he tells Hira, he says, hey, here's this, here's this, this goat that I promised her. Take it back and give it to her and get my stuff back. Hira goes, and he, he goes to the city gates, and she's not there, and he, he asks around, and, and they say, there is no temple prostitute here. And, and Judah says, well, well, just forget about it. She can keep the ring, she can keep the cord, she can keep the staff, because I don't want people to make fun of me for what I did. We will be, as it says in, in uh, I believe it's verse 23, we'll be a laughing stock if people find out about this. Well, let's go on to verse 24. Let's see the outcome of this. Verse 24. And now it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by harlot. And then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her my son Selah. And he did not have relations with her again. Kind of reminds you of, of Nathan when he walked into David and told the story about the lamb that belonged, the single lamb that belonged to the owner and how the rich man came and, and took that lamb and gave it to a friend to eat. And David got all upset Bring him here before me and I will judge him. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. Tamar said, Who do these belong to? And Judah, I imagine when he saw it, his jaw dropped. He was like, Wow. She's more righteous than I. What a, what a story that is. How God worked to convict him. Be careful who you judge. Be careful who you judge. What was the first words out of his mouth? She's going to burn. I'm gonna, she needs to die because she's played the harlot. Be careful who you judge. Whose baby is this? Oh, it's yours. Ooh. Well, wait a second. Both of you should be stoned, right? Hmm. Matthew 7 says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, you will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Do you see the, the imagery here? Do you see what's going on? Think about it. How many of you have ever gotten something in your eye? Uh, the other day I was, I was sawing up some stuff uh, out clearing a fence line and, and I got a piece of sawdust right in the corner of my eye. What happens when you get something in your eye? You, you start watering and you start blinking and you're trying to, trying to you're, you're, you know, you're doing this thing, trying to get it out. And usually it takes going to the bathroom and looking in the mirror and finding it and getting a Q-tip or getting a, a corner of a handkerchief to get it out. And do you see the, the visual that God gives here? Can you imagine, you, you go up to somebody and say, can you, there's something in my eye, I need you to get it out for me. And they've got this beam sticking out of their own, own eye and they go, here, let me see, Whack! They hit you in the side of the head with this beam. You're like going, oh, wait, maybe I'll find somebody else to get this out for me. Get the log out of your own eye so that you can actually help people. And Judah had to come to grips with his own sin. You're the one whose child it is. In John 8, it talks about a young lady who was caught in sin right outside, right outside the temple gates. Likelihood, she may have been a temple prostitute. We don't know. But the Pharisees bring her in, and, they, and Jesus is sitting in a circle teaching people, and it says they threw her down in the middle of the circle and said, this woman was caught in adultery. The law says stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And I love his response. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And oh, I would love to know what he wrote on the ground. Because whatever he wrote, this, was, this is what happened. And when they heard it, when they saw what he wrote on the ground, when they heard him saying, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was, still in the center of the court in disgrace before Jesus. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, and this is important, no one Lord, that's a key. She understood who Jesus was, that he was the Lord. He was going to be the Lord of her life. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Sin no more. You see, a lot of people will say, oh, Jesus never condemned anybody. No, he told her to change. Because her heart had already changed. She had already called him Lord. She knew who he was. And he said, your heart has changed. Now change your behavior. And, and few people want to change their behavior. Oh yes, I want to, I, you know, Jesus, I want Jesus to be my Savior. But do I really want him to be my Lord? Do I really want to change? Jesus calls us to change. Jesus calls us to repentance. Jesus, yes, he didn't condemn her for what she had done. It was paid for. 
It would be paid for on the cross. But he said, go and sin no more. You need to change. You need to live like I've asked you to live. Well, this story ends up very interestingly in, with a set of twins. We got any twinsies here? Oh, we got a couple twins back there. You guys get along? No? Oh, wait. What? What? Well, that's a good honest answer, right? Well, the Bible, I mean, we, we saw Esau and Jacob, you know, they, they were fighting in their mom's room. This is another story like that. Here we got twins. What's going on? So let's, let's look at this, this last little vignette here, 27. And it came about at that time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. And moreover, it took place while she was giving birth that one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. He would be the firstborn. He, he, he came out first. And it came about as he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out. And when she said, what a breach you have made for yourself, so he was named Perez, which means breach. And afterwards his brother came out who was, had the scarlet hand on his, a thread on his hand, and he was named Sarah. That's a name for brightness. And I kind of laugh when I was reading this because you can almost see this going on right in the womb, right? You know, this little guy, he's like stretching out, you know, slide, he's like Pete Rose. He's sliding in the, fir, in the base head first. He's got his hand out. He's going, I'm going to be delivered. And Perez anchors his feet, grabs him by the, by the ankles and jerks him back in, and out he comes. First shall be last, right? Perez is born. And then Sarah comes out. And you say, well, what's the point of this story? What is the point of this whole thing? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Who was Abraham's firstborn? Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn through Hagar. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. Who was the firstborn? Esau. Not Jacob, but God's going to use Jacob to carry on his line. Jacob became the father of Judah. Who was Jacob's firstborn? Reuben. Judah was the secondborn. And his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar. Who was the firstborn? Sarah stuck his hand out. He was the firstborn. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. And you can rewrite down the genealogy until we come to Jesus. Who does God use? Who was in God's line? And you can read in the book of Matthew, you're going to read about Ruth. 
and you're going to read about Rahab. And you're going to see these people that God put into the line that is going to become the seed of David, which is going to become the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he puts these people in here. Now, what was the first question I asked you today? God can't use me because. You think God can use Judah? A man who sold his brother into slavery? That deceived his father? That went to, went, took a Canaanite wife and then even, even impregnated his, his daughter-in-law because he thought she was a prostitute? Judah used Tamara was caught in the midst of all of this and yet God used them to bring us a savior can God use you I don't know what you're carrying I don't know what your life has been like I don't know what burden you walk with but what I do know is that Jesus is enough Because you see, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't say, all you who are talented, all you who are good looking, all you who are enough, you come to the cross and I'll use you. You know what Jesus said? Everyone. You come to the cross. You bring whatever you have and you lay it at the feet of the cross. You bring your life, whatever mess it's in, whatever, whatever burden you're bearing, whatever sin you're in, you bring it to the cross and I'll pay the price. I'll pay the price. And as we come to communion, I want you to, to, to think of, God, I want you to use me and I've got all of this stuff that I, that will you just let me bring it here? And, and he says, yes. He said, bring it. I paid the price. My body was broken for you. My blood was shed for the remission of your sin. When we come to communion, what we come in to say is that God is enough to overcome whatever it is that you've been through in life. He's enough.